Recruiting Trailblazers is now brought to you by Recruiter.com, the hiring platform with the world's largest network of recruiters. Recruiter.com helps employers to recruit talent faster with virtual teams of recruiters, AI candidate matching, and now Recruiter.com video. Recruiter.com video can help shorten your average recruiting process by a week so you can slash your time to hire without slashing your quality of hire. Visit video.recruiter.com and enter code RECRUITER1000. That's RECRUITER with a capital R and the number 1000 to access the Recruiter.com video beta program for free. Again, that's video.recruiter.com and enter code RECRUITER1000. And thank you to Recruiter.com for sponsoring this podcast. Coming to you from Silicon Valley, I'm Marcus Edwards, and I'm on the hunt for recruiting leaders, producers, innovators, and pioneers who've made their mark on the industry and can't wait to share their points of view. We'll tackle the tough topics and dig deep to find the answers you're looking for and some actionable advice you can take to the bank. So stick around and stay tuned and welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers. Okay, I'm very excited this week on Recruiting Trailblazers to welcome Mike Myatt. As the founder and chairman of N2 Growth, a top executive search firm with more than 50 locations globally, Mike serves as a leadership advisor to Fortune 500 CEOs and boards. He's advised some of the world's best-known CEOs, entrepreneurs, and public figures, and been a guest lecturer at many of the world's top universities and their business schools. On top of all that, He's authored several books, including the best-selling Hacking Leadership and Leadership Matters. So welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers, Mike Myatt. How are you, Mike? I am well. How are you, sir? I am very well indeed, and excited to have you on board here for a conversation on my podcast. And we've got a lot to unpack today because we connected a couple of weeks ago. We had a very interesting conversation about you and your organization, N2 Growth. And um, I'm fascinated to dig a little bit deeper into your journey and how you've grown the company and some of the core principles and some of your leadership tenants. So a lot to unpack, as I said, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, likewise, likewise. So one of the most interesting things, getting straight into it, was really your journey into this business. And going back to sort of, I think it was 2005, I think it's very interesting how the genesis of N2 Growth sort of came about. And I was wondering if you could just share that story with me. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. It's a, it's a fairly eclectic, non-traditional journey. I'd love to tell you that I had a uh, brilliant business plan that I flawlessly executed, but, you know, I think I'd rather be lucky than smart any day of the week. And, you know, honestly, it was born out of kind of a I don't know, maybe a, a tragic life circumstance that didn't end up in the end being so tragic, but I had an early stroke and I actually woke up in a hospital room and they said, hey, Mike, what you don't get back in a couple of years, you won't get back. And so I went on this two-year journey of trying to figure out whether or not I was going to have the intellectual acuity, the emotional 
I guess, intelligence to kind of get back to a, a spot where I where I could work. And about the time I was figuring out that I, w- I was going to be able to function again, uh, that was about the same time that my wife said, hey, Mike, you need to go find something to do. You're driving everybody absolutely crazy. And, and so that's kind of how Into Growth was born. It was just born to kind of get me out from underfoot and, and, and have a hobby business and kind of see what I could do. So I started out as one guy working out of my house and, and I was doing CEO coaching. I'd been a, a former CEO, kind of a serial entrepreneur, a hired CEO for a couple of other businesses. So I thought, well, you know, coaching is kind of all the rage back in 2005. It was just kind of the kind of the be- real beginning of high level CEO coaching. And so I dove in and, you know, the rest is kind of history, but that, that was the start. So there you are coaching CEOs. And at this point, you hadn't sort of realized a vision for becoming an executive search firm, right? Yeah, no, not at all. In fact, that's how we got into search. We we were actually invited in by our clients. I, you know, I had a few conversations where, oh, I don't know, it, it sort of went like this. It was like, hey, Mike, you you understand our culture, you know our leadership team, you've met with the board, you get our business model. Do you help? Do you think you could help us find talent? And, you know, the first couple of times I heard that, I'm like, nah, that's not what we do. Yeah, I just kind of blew right by it. I'll, I'll frankly admit to being tone deaf. And, but it kept coming up. And so finally I thought, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe I had to look at this. Being an ex operator, I'd recruited, been recruited, hired agency recruiters, kind of knew the space, but had never really looked at it from the perspective of being in the business. And so I kind of jumped back and, you know, I dove in with my team. And we looked around and, you know, not to be cliche, but, you know, it was a really kind of legacy based industry. It was dominated by a small handful of people that, you know, minus modest advances in technology, they'd kind of been doing the same things the same ways for decades. And, you know, I just looked at that and I thought, hey, there's a real opportunity to disrupt here. And so we dove in kind of with a vision of recreating search, kind of developing a 21st century search practice, you know, designed kind of future forward, forward leaning vision. And, you know, again, it just resonated with the market. So I I think the timing was good. I had an open invitation into a market that I was already known in coming at it from a little bit of a different perspective. And, you know, I think it's just how you look at a market. You know, do Mm -hmm. you look at it as, hey, I I just want to copy what's there or or do I want to create something new? And we took the creation approach. Yeah. I mean, it's very much about mindset, isn't it? Altering the mindset yeah, and then approaching people with some ideas that resonate. What were some of the opportunities that you saw in the way that you chose to present yourself and chose to present N2 Growth when you first started having these conversations with people about you know, finding their next group of executives or their next CEO? Well, you know, if we look at the genesis of the firm, we started out as a leadership development firm, focusing on board and CEO succession and advisory work. So, and that was the type of search work in the early days. We were just exclusively doing board and CEO searches. That was it. And so we had a little bit of a different 
frame of reference, some different lenses that we look through. Because unlike all of our competitors who started out as executive search firms, then kind of bolted on leadership, we, we did it just the opposite. We were a true leadership development firm that kind of morphed into search. So, so I think, you know, we didn't have a lot of talent acquisition folks here, and we still don't. I mean, we have some, I don't know, Corn Ferry refugees and Hydric and Spencer refugees, but those are the exception, not the rule. Most of our team here are ex-operators. They've built and led teams in the real world and, again, have walked in the shoes of our clients. So, you know, our teaming structure was different. Our philosophy was different. We started to build out different tool sets and, you know, just different approaches and different processes. And so in the early days, you know, some of it um, was tough sledding, you know, to be very candid, we'd approach people and say, hey, we're really differentiated and, we, and we're different by design and we built everything to be different. And not everybody wanted different. In the early days, it's like, well, that's that's kind of cool. It's interesting, but they would rather walk into the boardroom, check the box, and say, "Hey, we just hired the biggest search firm in the world. We just engaged Corn Ferry," and they didn't really care about anything else because it kind of de-risked it as far as the board was concerned. But as time went on, I, I think people were more and more willing to embrace different and next and what if as opposed to what is. And so over time, it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And, you know, now we're in 50, 50 different markets globally. So I, I think, again, timing is really important. Yeah. I mean, really, it's the ultimate sort of Trojan horse model, isn't it? Because when you start talking to companies, you're not talking about, hey, you know, can we have a, a crack at your next wreck? You're talking about how we can help transform your business from the top down. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I, I mean, we we say around here that we're not in the business of slinging resumes and CVs. We're in the business of providing insights, guidance, and counsel. And, and it's really looking at the problem sets, looking at the challenges, looking at the obstacles. And, you know, not just, hey, there's an open position, so let's backfill it by using the, the job description that was used to fill the the prior role is like okay, let's let's use this as an opportunity to reinvent and reimagine. You know, should should it be a single role? Should it be split up into multiple roles? Can we consolidate? Can we expand? I mean, what what does the market need today versus what it needed? You know, years ago. I mean, I'll give you an example. Right now, we're working uh, on a CEO search, and it's not uncommon where the CEOs had a very very long tenure. And and, you know, the business dynamics and atmospherics in the market are a little bit different today than when when this gentleman uh, jumped in the chair. And while the business has grown uh, and, you know, they, they've had good success in the market, I, I think it's really easy to look outward and say, well, you know, there there's some things that can be done here. There's some things that need to be updated and innovated. And, you know, the business needs to change organizationally. They need maybe a refresh go-to-market strategy. And the best way to solve all of those business problems is with talent, right? Really switched on next generation talent that looks at this thing from a completely different perspective. So, you know, a lot of times what we're solving is legacy issues. And I think that's really exciting. It's really fun and it's really value added. And do you find that 
most of your clients are open to that kind of feedback? I mean, there must be a transactional end to this business where people are just looking to fill a position, whereas some organizations are much more open to the idea that you're solving a business problem and that you can be a true partner to them. It it must sometimes be quite a tricky line to walk. You know, I think it's not real difficult for us because we don't view it as there's an, another option. And, and I think, again, if we're going to be thought partners for our clients and, and they're going to pay us the type of money that they pay us, they're going to make the investment into us that they make, they deserve the truth. They deserve a, a candid professional opinion. Yep. And so we're not real bashful about pushing back on clients and challenging clients. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't end well, but, but it's pretty hard to refute solid business logic, right? If, it, if everything underpinning the business thesis hangs together well, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to toe the line of, hey, we're just going to do it the way we've always done it. And so, you know, that's kind of our job is to get in the middle of that kind of thought stream and just interrupt it. And so I, I think it's not always welcomed at first, but I think once they realize that it's coming from a good position and, and frankly, a very friendly position, they come around. But, but they're so used to having people that just, hey, send me the job description. I'm going to cut it and paste it and put it on our letterhead with an intro and outro paragraph, and and then I'm going to sling it out to the market. And and that's just such an archaic, antiquated way of doing things that I think clients really appreciate a a fresh approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to get into that a little bit later. You mentioned some of the bigger firms, you know, the Spencer Stewart's and Corn Ferries, et cetera. And there's definitely a badge of honor in corporate America when you hire those kind of firms, as expensive as they are. When you're a part of that conversation, how do you differentiate yourself right out of the box? I mean, how do you share your value proposition when you're privy to the fact that they're already talking to some of these other bigger firms as well? You know, it's probably the best thing that we encounter in the market is competing with legacy-based search firms. So, you know, we're much larger than the small firms and we're a little bit smaller than, you know, the legacy-based, you know, Big four, big five, but we're, we're right on their heels. And so, you know, I like to say we're larger than the small folks and smaller than the large folks. So we're big enough to be able to flex our muscles and have the right footprint and have the right resources. Yet we're still small enough to be really agile and bespoke. And so it's a nice place in the market to fit. But, you know, when we talk about differentiation, we differentiate by process, by approach, by intellectual property, by price by contracting, by teaming. I mean, we've literally taken the traditional search process and tried to reinvent every aspect of it so that, you know, our, our goal is not to resemble a corn fairy or a hydric. It's to be as polar opposite to them as we possibly can. And that's what's resonating with clients. So, so literally, if you compare our process to the typical, you know, you, you go out and you do the long list, short list. And by the time you get to the short list, 
first, you hope that there's a candidate standing that either resonates with the client or you have to start the whole thing over again, right? And, and every client has been through that process where, you know, they get 35 candidates in a long list, they boil it down to four or five on a short list. And at the end of the day, the candidates aren't interested in the client, the client's not interested in the candidate, maybe there was a mutuality of interest, but they couldn't come to terms. And everybody has that, oh, oops, moment, They and, and they have to start the search all over again. You know, with us, we don't do long list. I mean, we do exhaustive, deep, robust market mapping, you know, that, that's more akin to a McKinsey or a Forrester or a Gartner report. And we can do that by geography, by role, by industry, by function. You know, we can slice and dice data any any way that a client wants to see it. But you know, it's it's not the typical market scan that they would get from the average search firm where they get an Excel spreadsheet or maybe they get a little slide deck with seven or eight specimen profiles. I mean, this is deep immersive, exhaustive research. And then when we go to pipelining, you know, we don't do long list, short list. We do continuous iterative pipelining. We never stop pipelining until a role is filled. And so, you know, they, they really get a robust, comprehensive search not a check-the-box, phone-it-in search. And they recognize the difference right out of the gate. You know, and our teaming structure is different. We throw more elbows and kneecaps at a search than the traditional search firm does. But we, we've got our own proprietary intellectual property in terms of a technology platform that we built, which is really client-centric. And, and you start to combine all these things, and you end up with market-leading performance metrics. So at the end of the day, when, when we're talking with clients, clients, we can talk about, we can talk all day long about how different they are, but at the end of the day, they want to know, hey, what types of outcomes do you produce? And so we literally lead the industry in every meaningful category of performance metrics. So when we sit down and we talk with clients and we say, hey, you know, here's the track record, here's the data, here's oodles and oodles of relevant, referenceable case studies and testimonials and references, it becomes a pretty easy decision for the client to make. Yeah, indeed. I imagine some of these methodologies have probably resonated across the industry as well. Do you find yourself being copied by some of your competitors? Oh, yeah. You know, especially on the technology side, I mean, we came out in 2000, probably 2007, with, with a really cool platform. And this is something that we built internally. And so, you know, long gone are the days where the client has to wait for a slide deck or a spreadsheet to come, aclo- come across their inbox for like a weekly update meeting with us. They could log on to our platform. Uh, they could see every candidate in the pipeline real time as we see them. They could rate and rank candidates, move them up, down, out, out of the pipeline as got data and analytics. I mean, it's, and we're on like version nine jillion by now, right? Because this came out like a long time ago. So we've just continued to evolve it. But when we launched that into the market, nobody had that type of platform. No small firm, no big firm, nobody. Now, other people have developed those types of tools, but I think we're still way ahead in the marketplace. And I think it's a much more finished product. And And I think the market sees that. But yeah, there there's lots of people that are trying to do similar things. Does that level of transparency, when you share that amount of data, 
and that amount of research, does that ever hurt you if you can't get through to those or pipeline those specific candidates for conversations? Or do you prefer just to be completely transparent right out of the box? Oh, it's, that that's the name of the game. It's a 100% transparent search process. And a lot of firms just refuse to do that. They won't do it. They maybe take that position that 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 it hurts them. But I've I've got a very old saying, you know, it goes managing expectations is gamesmanship, aligning them is leadership. And so I think if you align the expectations up front, you know, I've seen that movie and it ends well. And if you don't, you know, I've seen that movie and, you know, it's a nightmare. It's a horror film. And so I I think really making sure that all those expectations are lined up front and say, look, you know, we've mapped this exhaustively. We know where we want to go. Now, now there's no guarantee whatsoever that we're going to be able to compel every candidate displayed here. But but at least we've identified them. We know where they are. And we've got kind of an omni-channel approach to the market. So we've got a very high likelihood of getting to the right people, but there's no guarantees in life, right? Yeah. We talk about this a lot on the podcast in terms of engagement, outreach, relationships. I mean, what do you think the real key when it comes to having and reaching out to high level executives and setting up that conversation, that very first conversation, what does N2 growth do differently, do you think? And how do you distinguish yourself at that part of the process? You know, it's interesting. I think I I mentioned it a little bit earlier, Marcus, about how the average search firm, what they go to market with, I I mean, frankly, isn't really compelling, right? And especially at the senior level where you've got really smart, intuitive, and instinctual types of executives that ask really hard questions and they demand really smart answers and their time is valuable. So, you know, when we go to market, you know, it's it's not a job description. It's a candidate briefing and it's a full package and it's like it's ad agency caliber four color, you know, brochure worthy. And, and, you know, it's really informative and insightful. And it it answers a lot of questions and it makes a very compelling statement for why they ought to give us some time. Right. And and so, you know, our, our initial outreach is compelling. Our follow-up is really good because they're talking to really smart people that, that have likely walked in their shoes and they're prepared to answer all the hard questions questions. So everything from, you know, their first perception of our brand, we diligence very well. You know, if somebody looks at us in the market, they can see that we're, you know, working top of the house confidential searches with great success. And so, you know, everything that they kind of encounter from us is, I don't know, anti-search, right? It doesn't look like a typical executive search firm. And, And so, I mean, maybe there's a curiosity factor involved, but what, whatever it is, the recipe is working. And I think the thing that's really important about what we do is just because it's working, we don't stop there. I, I mean, we are in constant reinvention mode. Everything that we do is getting looked at and looked at and looked at and reevaluated and, and then re-implemented. So it's a, it's a very fluid, rapidly evolving process, but it just keeps getting better. And we've been doing that, you know, for a long time now. Yeah. And of course, when you're a brand ambassador, when you're working on behalf of a client company that you love 
and, you know, whose mission and values you're proud to share and whose products and services, you know, you are excited to, to get to market with. That's all fantastic, isn't it? But what happens when you're approached by a company who perhaps you're struggling to get excited about the opportunity or the future of that company? I mean, is it more difficult for you to go to market with that or do you literally just sort of walk away? Walk away a hundred percent of the time. I mean, if if we can't get excited about a company and their story and their vision, you know, perhaps their ethos, perhaps their culture, just their leadership philosophy. I, I mean, if 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 they represent markets that aren't aligned with maybe our core values, yeah, we walk away because we can't serve them well. I, I mean, what what candidates sense in the market when when you're engaged with a candidate, they know if you're just schlepping or selling something versus representing something you know and, and I think that that's the big thing we we have to kind of put ourselves in our client shoes be able to communicate their value propositions as well or better than they can understand their business as well or better than they do and, and that's a lot of work and, and you don't invest in that type of work if you're not really excited about it. And, and so that's that's the big thing. I mean, if, if I look at an opportunity in the market and I know that my team isn't going to get behind it, isn't going to be excited about it, then I don't want to do it. And, and yep. so, yeah, we walk away from a lot of business like that. Yeah. You know, you touched on that big word culture. And it's something that we talk about a lot here on the podcast because- I've always said that culture is the biggest mover of people from one company to another. It's what attracts people to companies and it's what drives people out of certain companies as well if, if the culture isn't what they're looking for. How do you embrace that concept when you're approaching candidates and, and when you're talking to clients for the first time? And do you help them realign their culture if you feel that it's perhaps it needs some work? You know, we've done some culture work o over the years, but, you know, some actual professional services engagement about, you know, reshaping culture. But I, I think it's it's more our job to understand the culture. And, and that means understanding the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Because the worst thing that you can do in the market is present a client to be better or different than they really are. Because when the last candidate standing ends up being boots on the ground and, and they walk into something that's radically different than what they thought they were walking into, that's just not a position that we ever want to be a broker of, right? So our, our approach is to understand the good and accentuate how compelling that is while also disclosing the reality that there's no such thing as a perfect culture and, and you know, and, and having, getting our clients to buy off on that approach, right? Because it, it's very advantageous to them to have somebody land in an organization where they're not going to have surprises popping up all over the place, right? I mean, you don't want to have to be walking through a minefield with clown shoes on. I mean, you want to be able to really easily navigate things because you can see what's coming because you understand it. And so, yeah, culture is hugely important. And like I said, our job is to understand it, communicate it authentically and transparency with transparency, but make it compelling. Yeah, completely understand. Now, when it comes to sort of the interview process, 
One of the frustrations that I've had at the mid-level and sometimes at the high level as well, clients who are looking for reasons not to hire somebody, as opposed to clients who are looking for reasons to hire somebody. And also sometimes when you have what you consider to be the perfect match, a candidate that just fits absolutely spot on to the role, um, aligns with the culture, the leadership, et cetera, but they're finding reasons not to proceed. How do you deal with sensitive situations like that when you feel that you've got more compelling data than the client has to move forward in the process? You know, that that's a situation that probably everybody has encountered, but, but I think our approach somewhat neutralizes that because every client comes to us, well, not every client, but the majority of them come to us with what they believe to be a really well-defined role because they've spent some time working on it. You know, they, they've invested some resources trying to figure out what they're looking for and who they're looking for. And, and I think the reality is a lot of those things, even though they've put a lot of time into it, invested a lot of resources into it and done a lot of good work, it's oftentimes work that's done in a vacuum. It's work that's done by looking in the rear view mirror as opposed to out the, out the windshield, right? And so our, our job is to take that spec and reshape it in kind of a co-created fashion with the client. Say, hey, this is great work. It's really well done. It's thoughtful. It's incisive. You know, it's illuminating. But, you know, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And have you considered this? And would you be interested in that? And so you have to help them kind of reshape it. And then when we actually go to market, our goal is not to be uh, our our goal is not just to make the hire. That's the big thing. And any moron can hire somebody, right? You know, making the hire is not the end game. It's having a hire that adds contribution margin and creates successful outcomes and makes the people around them better and solves the problems and leverages the opportunities. And so where most search firms, I think, their role ends at the placement, that's where ours really begins. I mean, our engagements include six months of post-hire advisory work, and we stay engaged because what we're trying to do is drive business outcomes. And so for us, when we're talking to candidates, we're not as concerned about the spec as we are who's going to be really successful and impactful in the role. So let's say on spec, as an analogy, we'll find some people that are bullseye, but we're going to go out probably several concentric rings and find people that are in adjacencies or even non-adjacent markets that we believe could still sit in the chair and do the job well. They would just do it differently, right? So our job is to provide clients with optionality. So, you know, and when they look at a really traditional candidate, candidate versus, let's say, a non-traditional candidate, there's often that aha moment where they go, huh, I didn't really think about that, but that's interesting. And so, you know, that's that's the thing. We don't want to present somebody with a bunch of candidates that all look alike. Yeah. We want to present them with candidates that are all differentiated in interesting and compelling ways so that clients can make a really well-informed decision. And that's maybe a little bit of a different approach than some people take. Indeed. And to what extent do you think when you've got a group of candidates and some of whom may have similar accomplishments and similar size of companies that they've worked at and some of the data is just perfectly aligned, to what extent does it then become a personality contest? 
That's a great question, Marcus. And I think it's always a personality contest. And that's okay if the personality contest reveals the right behavioral characteristics and attributes and experiences and emotional intelligence. I I mean, if it's just the loudest, most dominating voice in the room, that's a personality contest that is likely to not end well. But if you're looking for both fit and add, and and you're really assessing these candidates, not only from like a psychometric perspective, but, you know, from a lot of different perspectives so that we can reveal a, a very clear picture of who these people are as human beings, right? Because at the end of the day, you don't hire resumes, you hire humans, and you better darn well understand the entirety of the human being that you're hiring. And so, you know, having our having our history and our formation as a leadership development firm that basically assess people for a living and maybe more exhaustively than a typical search firm does, you know, that that's a real value add that we bring to the table. And and that that's the key to the whole thing is understanding that who you hire, you hire all of them. You don't hire a part of them. You hire all of them. Yeah. And I think clients are always looking for candidates that can prove that they've done the work before, that they can do the work right now, and they need to map it to previous accomplishments. Have you ever seen a situation where you've just come across an exceptional candidate with an amazing personality that kind of eschews that entire approach and says, look, we want to hire this individual, even though their previous experience doesn't necessarily perfectly map onto where we're going. Perhaps they come from a smaller organization or they aren't domain specific. Do do you ever see clients in this space at the very top of the market here taking risks with the people that they hire? Yeah, all the time. In fact, you know, some of the mandates that we get are are mandates to find a non-traditional candidate because they want to infuse the organization with with some outside end thinking. So I I would say a decent amount of our engagements are, hey, you know, we know all the people in our industry. You know, we we know the people that are competitors. What we don't know is is what's beyond that. And, And can you illuminate that for us? Can you give us some insights into what that looks like. And and so, and and I think that's the real key, right? Our our job, again, is not to check the box and phone it in. It's to go look for candidates that other search firms wouldn't even look for because it's not easy or it's not efficient or, or it erodes margin. You know, our job is to go out and find people that most people wouldn't even look for. And and every candidate pool that we have has traditional candidates, non-traditional candidates, people early in life cycle, people more mature in their career, diverse and non-diverse, adjacent and non-adjacent spaces. I mean, that's the key to a good search. It's being willing to stretch the thinking of your client and get them to evaluate things that maybe they hadn't thought about coming into the search. And and look, Marcus, you've done this long enough to know that most clients' thinking changes throughout the course of a search, right? Their, Their thinking evolves and some firms don't handle that well. And, and we love exploration here. I mean, that that's really the journey of search is exploration. Yeah. I've always loved clients that are willing to take a leap of faith and a client who isn't hiring defensively because they want to look good down the road if something goes wrong. Well, you know, this person had X amount of experience from this company. How was I supposed to know kind of approach? I love yeah. working with organizations who say, look, show me somebody different. 
and show me the reasons why you think this person would excel in this role. And for me, that's really the core of an exciting opportunity rather than just somebody who directly maps with experience that sort of completely mirrors what they're looking to do in the current role. I find those kind of opportunities, you know, less exciting to work on. So I completely understand where you're coming from. And also from your perspective, you've built so much trust and such a deep relationship with your client up front before you even begin the search. They're going to listen to you very, very carefully when you make your recommendations, aren't they? I mean, you've, you've got that built in because you've got that sort of relationship up front before you even get out and start the search. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, look, if a client doesn't want to listen to our recommendations, you know, we probably shouldn't have, uh, have engaged to begin with, right? right? And so I, I think what clients are really looking for is, look, at the end of the day, it's it's their decision, but we are truly a thought partner for them and we are an advisor to them. And so if we're just letting them wrestle with us all on their own, you know, it's probably not in their best interest. And that's not what we were hired to do. We were hired to wrestle it to, to the ground with them or for them or on behalf of them. And so at the end of the day, our recommendation has to carry weight. And if it doesn't, we haven't done our job well. Right. You haven't done it well up front because you haven't built that trust. Yep. And without that trust, you really can't, you're hamstrung. You really can't do your job because your job is to invest yourself in the very best candidate and recommend those candidates so that they go through the process and hold the hand of your client as they go through that process as well. And even show them how to conduct interviews, I imagine, as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's most most of our clients are, you know, very large multi-global, multinational yep. organizations and you know, they have their own internal processes and, and, and they have a lot of things that they take great pride in because they've invested a lot of money in it. But we still have to help them navigate because it doesn't take much at the board and C level to get something wrong. And, and these candidates are very discerning. They have lots of options. And, and frankly, you know, the switching costs today are, are really low. The barriers to movement, right? I mean, this is a very high mobility market and, and it's becoming more and more so every day. And, and there aren't, I, I don't know, for, for the best talent, there, there's never a, a market that's an employer's market. <clears throat> For the best talent, it's always a candidate's market because they always have options. So a, as, a, as an employer, as a client, you, you have to have all your ducks in a row. It's got to be game on. And, and you, as much as you're buying as a client, you're also selling because it's a very competitive market out there. So if they don't get that right, they don't get the best talent. And, and, the, and it's, you know, best teams win and the best teams are made up of the best talent. And, and that's just... That's just a that's just a core principle and truth that you're going to live or die by in the market. I feel very passionate about that point that you just made because I think that as search professionals, there's nothing more disappointing for us than presenting a fantastic slate of candidates and then them having a weak candidate experience as they go through the process because there's so much buying and there's no selling. And I think yep. you're absolutely right. Even today, in the COVID economy, it's still a candidate market. And yes, okay, it wasn't for a few months, but we're back in a candidate-driven market. And so companies 
need to do an incredibly good job of ensuring that every candidate has a wonderful experience from the word go, from the minute they start their very first conversation, so that when closing time comes, you know, they're in with a chance because that candidate's probably got a few other things on the go as well. And so it's really down to the organisation themselves to provide, you know, a wonderful experience so that that candidate chooses you over the other four opportunities they've got on the go at any one time. Yeah, and, and they choose you for all the right reasons. Right. You know, because it's like compensation is important. You know, it's very real. It's very material. It's always going to be a component of, of the decision-making process. But if maximizing W-2 or, you know, LTIP or equity or the total comp package is the only reason a candidate is making the decision, you better run fast. That's not the right candidate. I mean, compensation is going to be a part of it, but it's all those other things. Is there value and vision alignment? You know, are they both a culture fit and a culture addition? You know, are they going to bring something compelling, new and unique and advantaged to that organization? Do do they like, you know, the team? Do they like the philosophy? Do they like the market dynamics and atmospherics? Do they under do they like the business thesis? I mean, all of these things have to work. And if you're not evaluating all of these things, you're likely to run into a problem down the road. Right. That's so true. But I think that companies are getting better and better at understanding that sort of concept now. Yeah. That in yeah. order for them to be in with a chance at closing time, they have to do a very good job throughout the process of interviews and, uh, you know, bringing these candidates on board ultimately. Okay. So you've written a couple of books on leadership and we've got a few minutes left here. And those books were Hacking Leadership and Leadership Matters. Can you just lay out a couple of the core principles in those books, especially the ones that you feel apply specifically today? And let's talk a little bit about how leadership is changing. Yeah. You know, look, being in the leadership business, being in the talent business, we're in the people business, right? And but for the people, there are no products, there are no services, there are no platforms, there are no businesses. So you better darn well put people first. And, and I think that principle has really been highlighted going through what the world has gone through over the last 18 months, because People really matter. And as a leader, if you didn't take care of your people during COVID, if you didn't put their well-being and, and their safety first, you paid a pretty darn big price for that. And so I, I think we now live in a world where hopefully leaders understand that their sole job is to take care of their people and everything else is really noise. And so, you know, that's a principle that I think is really important. You know, I've always said that leaders that aren't accountable to their people will eventually be held accountable by their people, right? It's a leader's job not to leverage their people, but to create leverage for their people. It's not to put them in a box, it's to free them from the box, right? And, and so if you really get the people dynamics right, it, it, it's strangely odd how you get the culture right and you get the organizational dynamics right and, and you, you solve a lot of the problem sets much easier, much more seamlessly. But the great thing about the intersection of leadership and talent acquisition is it all boils right back down to the people. And, and that's, that's kind of where my personal passion is. You know, when I do, I, I still do, my primary book of business is 
CEO succession. And, and I've had a lot of very high profile CEO succession engagements in the market. And, you know, succession plans are nice. But at the end of the day, you know, plans don't succeed, people succeed. <laughs> and so you can do all the planning in the world, but if you don't get the people dynamics right, you, you get most things wrong. Yeah, that's so true. What are some of the challenges that you've faced or that have really risen to the surface during the last year when you've had people working remotely? I know you've been somewhat of a remote organization for a long time, but are there any leadership challenges that you perhaps have struggled with or you've seen other leaders struggle with as a result of the COVID economy? You know, I think senior leaders maybe have struggled more than the balance of the team. You know, they, they have, in many respects, worked in kind of a, a cloistered environment, right? Kind of a sequestered environment right. where the, the C-level team is on the 13th floor and, you know, you have to go through a couple of security checks to, to get access to that floor. And, you know, they kind of work well amongst one another and they're in meetings all day long with one another. And, you know, it, it's it's been kind of the- Ivory tower syndrome, yeah. I, ivory tower syndrome, exactly. And, and so they've been forced from that ivory tower and they, they've had to be more engaged and more broadly engaged and more deeply engaged because it's one thing to pump out an email or a press release or some type of internal positioning statement. It's another thing to have to be on camera with, with people that, that are real time able to ask you questions and push back on things. So I, I think it's forced leaders to redefine how they're engaging people. And, and honestly, Marcus, it's been a great thing. It, you know, it's been a struggle for some of them, but it's been a great thing because they're better leaders as a result of it. Yeah. And I also think there've been a lot of good things that have come out of this because from a productivity standpoint, people are now looking in the mirror saying, well, you know, what are my outcomes? Because I'm not in the office sitting in meetings, being good in meetings and being measured by sort of more esoteric kind of metrics these are productivity metrics that people are being measured by now. So in some ways, I think it's, it's changed the way that we work because we're much more focused on outcomes. And it's contrary to what a lot of people thought was going to happen, which is, well, if you let people work remotely, they're never going to work as hard. But I think actually the opposite has happened. Have you seen that at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, yes, I think people do work harder and it's something that you have to guard against, right? Because it, people can work themselves into a funk, right? They can drive themselves right. right off the road into a ditch because they they now have a harder time shutting off because work is just kind of always on. So, you know, but once you get beyond that hurdle and, and people figure out how to kind of navigate a, a remote or a decentralized type of an environment, they can actually really thrive because they can build it around their preferences and their proclivities. You know, they can build it around their lifestyle and, and the things that they need to do. And, and so they can really go all in, in in a much more meaningful fashion once they figure out how to get their sea legs. And so that that's that's what help that that's what happens in a healthy environment is you get a lot more productivity because people start to become less concerned about 
about who's right and, and, and more concerned about what's right. You know, they, they start looking at the outcomes more than the process. And, and I think that's the, that's the big thing. I mean, it's less rules driven, more guidelines driven. People have a little bit more space. They, they have the ability to innovate and create. And, and that's a really healthy thing for most organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, a certain degree of irony, in fact, that we've ended up with employers trying to stop their employees from working so hard from home <laughs> as opposed yeah. to the opposite. Yeah. Um, that seems to be a recurring sort of theme right now with well-being, et cetera, high on everybody's list of concerns. But interesting stuff. Well, look, what are you excited about moving forward? Obviously, we're all optimistic about how the COVID economy is, is progressing and, and starting to open up and people are getting more confidence and the markets are still strong. What are you excited about for the rest of 2021? You know, I, I kind of, I, I guess what excites me about 2021 and beyond is kind of born out of what happened in 2020, right? I, I mean, I think, you know, when you sit down and you talk to leaders, Marcus, and you, you know, and you start talking to them about business matters, very quickly you get to the point of discussions around a portfolio of strategic initiatives, right? And so, you know, if you just rewind back to 2019 and look what happened to all those strategic plans. How did that work out for folks, right? I mean, I, th- I think what happened is 2020 – created a new and unique perspective on the future, right? The future is no longer this far off, distant, ethereal event. It's no longer this big, amorphous hairball. It's happening in milliseconds, right? It's happening every millisecond and just refreshing itself over and over and over again. So I think what people have figured out is, you know, not to be cliche, but they've figured out how to pivot a a whole lot more effectively and much more frequently by necessity than they've ever had to before. So yeah, emerging technology is coming faster and all, all of these things are happening that we all know about, but I think it's much more real to people today. And, and so people are really looking at what's next more than they ever have. More, I, I think universally more than they ever have. And that's what's exciting to me is helping clients try and solve that problem because you, you solve the problem or the opportunity of what's next by having talent that's focused on that, that thinks like that. I, I mean, long gone are the days where you want people that just don't have the creativity and the intellectual curiosity and the emotional intelligence and, you know, the right skill sets and competencies to kind of look out and look beyond, right? It's like, I want people constantly getting better at what they do, developing, reimagining what they do, reinventing how what they do is done. And that. That's the key, and that's yeah. what's excite. That that's what excites me. So our whole company, our whole culture is built on helping clients. I, I don't know, pull the future forward, right? Kind of pull it closer to them, and, and that's fun. That's yeah. fun work. You're so right because, in fact, my favorite saying of all time, and I'm sure I've said this on the podcast many times, is no plan can survive contact with the enemy, or, or as Mike <laughs> Tyson said, yeah. very eloquently, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the face. There you and go. so you're talking about that level of flexibility, 
adaptability, and of course, risk-taking skills as well in order to be able to see those new problems coming. And they're coming a lot thicker and faster than they ever did before. So you can't just stick to the old business plan and hope for the best, can you? No. Well, you know, look, there's nowhere to hide. I I mean, whether you want it or not, transparency is if if it's not already on your doorstep it's coming you know so there there's nowhere to hide uh, and you might as well get out in front of those problems and play offense as opposed to being in somebody's wake and, and, you know, having to struggle to get up to the top so you can take a breath. I mean, you know, you can either ride the wave or you can get crushed by it, right? Absolutely. And those are words of wisdom. Let's all play some offense. This has been a real pleasure having a conversation with you today, Mike Myatt, uh, president of N2 Growth. Really appreciate you coming on board. It's been fantastic to talk to you, and I hope we can stay in touch and chat again sometime soon. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, Marcus. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Cheers. 